Hi, I'm Seth Roseman. I'm Jonathan Fuller. And welcome to No Experts Allowed, where we try to make the Bible less scary, more approachable, and a more consistent means of connecting with the divine. Each week, Seth and I alternate between two roles. The non-expert takes a look at a specific Bible story and prepares for a conversation about it centered around two questions. What's the story and what's the point? Meanwhile, the storyteller joins in the conversation, reacting to the story as they hear it. Because the so-called experts aren't the only ones who can make meaning and sense of the Bible as we read it together. So if you're new to or exploring Christian faith, if you've been to seminary like us, if you want to know more about the Bible but don't want to hear another sermon, or if you're anywhere in between, this podcast is for you. Join us and let's tell a good story today. Seth, you look wonderful this evening. How are you? Well, now I'm flattered. I'm so glad. You're blushing, I can tell. I am. Our listeners might not be able to, but they should know that you're feeling real embarrassed right now. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you're doing well, and I hope you're ready for a very important question. What would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to receive $1 million right now or receive $1,000 a week for the next 1,000 weeks? I think I would take 1000 a week for the next 1,000 weeks because it would encourage me not to spend it all at once. It would force me to like meter it out. But if you just gave me a million dollars, I'd probably buy dumb stuff. You don't think you're going to buy stuff with the $1,000 you're just getting out of nowhere every week for 20 years? <laughs> Maybe, but probably, probably less dumb stuff. Or at least I have to wait to like, to like I have to pull it a while to get enough money to buy the really dumb stuff. I cannot believe how much money a million dollars is. I know. Like saying $1,000 a week for 1,000 weeks. Just like, oh my gosh, that's a lot. And a million, I think it feels like it's thrown around more because numbers in the billions and trillions are, I guess, more realistic these days, which doesn't make any sense. We don't have any any point of comparison or reference for numbers this big, really. I, I think I would take it now. I don't want to wait to spend the money. I think I would still, I feel comfortable enough to still be able to plan stuff, but I want the money now. (laughs) I mean, I kind of get that. If you, if you have the wherewithal to not just blow it all on like a boat, like I, I want to learn how to sail. So I'd be so afraid if you gave me a million dollars, I'd buy a boat. How much is a boat? I don't know, but more than, more money than I have right now. And (laughs) I shouldn't be. I feel like you should be. I feel like you would boats. have a boat. Let's not buy boats. I can't believe this is where our conversation is going, just based on what I know this passage to be about tonight. <laughs> but I feel boats are one of those things that feel like a lot of it's a lot of work to maintain. That's true. And it's so expensive. Yeah, they're so expensive. <laughs> 
Because you have to not only buy a boat, you have to buy a place to store it. You have to maintain it. You have to learn. Yeah, you gotta learn how to do it. Because I don't know how to. I don't know how to pilot a boat. Like, no, no boats, okay. Seth. Although I feel like you'd rock a classic nautical outfit. Thanks. Like I always wear those. A captain's hat. I always wear Sperry's, the boat, those classic boat shoes. You're just, you're just wearing the shoes for the lifestyle that you want to yeah, have. Yeah, exactly. You're naming that reality and claiming it as your own. Oh my gosh. I think we need yeah, to Yeah, I move think so on. too. Will you please read the scripture for our episode tonight? I can do that. This is Matthew 19. Verses 23 to 30 from the Common English Bible. Then Jesus says to his disciples, I assure you that it will be very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. When the disciples heard this, they were stunned. Then who can be saved? They asked. Jesus looked at them carefully and said, It's impossible for human beings, but all things are possible for God. Then Peter replied, Look, we've left everything and followed you. What will we have? Jesus said to them, I assure you, who have followed me, that when everything is made new, when the human one sits on his magnificent throne, you also will sit on twelve thrones overseeing the twelve tribes of Israel. And all who have left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, or farms because of my name will receive 100 times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. No boats, I guess. No, no I feel no. terrible about talking about the amounts of money. <laughs> That we did, and And boats. boats. (laughs) And that's my bad for putting that WWYDITPS question together, but... (laughs) I'm just... (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of strange juxtaposition. Here's your million dollars, and let's buy a boat. And then it was like, okay, it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. And I guess that juxtaposition was what I wanted in that question, but I don't like the way that it's made me feel. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Why did you choose the Common English Bible for our text today? So as I've said on this podcast several times, the CEB is a go-to for me. I love this translation, especially the way it frames stories and dialogue in a narrative structure. And I think the back and forth between Jesus and the disciples is really important. The structure of that conversation is really important. So I wanted to emphasize the story of this text rather than, again, looking for a more scholarly translation. Still something that was working from the original original manuscripts to try to get at what this is all about rather than getting caught up in issues of language or structure or things like that. But as you read through the passage, other than feeling guilty about our boats, uh, what what things stood out to you? When I think of this passage and the way that I've heard it used, it's usually just the first part. 
the disciples are stunned. Jesus says that a rich person can't enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples are like super surprised. They're like, who can be saved? And then the answer is that it's impossible for people, but it's possible for God. But I think I always disconnect it from the second part when when Peter replies like, hey, what about us too? We've given up everything. Like that whole part. I don't really know if I ever realized how that's connected. That they've given up everything. Yeah, well, if you you want to talk about things that are making us uncomfortable, I think this passage contains a lot that makes <laughs> us uncomfortable these days, too. The important piece of this that I thought was interesting that the lectionary divided it up this way, this passage immediately follows the story that occurs, I believe, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke of the rich person, or sometimes called the rich young ruler, the person who comes to Jesus and says, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus talks about the commandments, and then he gets more specific about which commandments. And this guy says, I've done all these things. What am I missing? And then Jesus essentially tells him to go sell everything he has and follow me. And then when this person heard it, it says he went away saddened because he had many possessions. And that verse immediately precedes what we read. So there is certainly this very specific example and this pattern of Jesus taking the opportunity to follow up to something that happened kind of in public, more so in conversations with his disciples. So they all presumably were there to witness this experience. And then Jesus kind of used that as a teaching moment to have this conversation that we read more specifically here. With all of that, though, um, is there anything, I, I think, to follow up to my question from earlier, in addition to things standing out, what are the ways that you've heard this passage talked about before? Uh, because I, I, I have some memories of just, I think not wanting to do much with this passage because of what it says about wealth and what it says about our relationships even. So is there, are there any memories that you have in mind? I think I've heard this passage used, especially the part where it's impossible for human beings, but all things are possible for God. They use that line as like a way out of the first part right yep. it's like okay we got to get rid of yes. everything and then like oh but there's a loophole that it's impossible for you but luckily it's impossible <laughs> it is possible for god we can't squeeze that camel through the eye of a needle but god yeah, can exactly. and so we don't have to do anything about it <laughs> exactly yeah that's exactly what i was thinking about too and uh, i i think the the part of this text that is so challenging and thinking about the story of the text this is an example of a passage that, at least for me, brings to the forefront how other the context that this story came out of is to our setting, even our experience of the community of faith. But before I get too much into, into that, because I think that otherness of this passage is part of what's the point of the passage... I think it's important to pause and highlight the things that Jesus is teaching the disciples here. And really, there's this theme of, again, the kingdom of God and who belongs and who is going to have authority, right? Mm -hmm. 
And, and so we start off with the camel squeezing through an eye of a needle. And the, pa- the phrase that really stands out to me, and you mentioned it too in addition to reading it, is that the disciples were stunned at how hard it would be for the rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that phrase, that response is so striking to me because even in their setting, in their way of understanding the world, the rich were always first in line. Mm. Those that had access to resources were those that had access to power, right? And when you, the language that's used in the text of kingdom thinking about contrasting that with the empire that they lived in, they were thinking, oh, who has access to the kingdom? Who has access to the power? Well, it's the rich, right? The people who have access to the resources. And a lot of this is really just turning that on its head. Jesus talks about how the disciples who have given up everything that they have, they've taken the invitation that Jesus gives to the rich young man in the story just prior to this, they've taken that seriously and given up everything. They're going to be the ones sitting on the thrones mm-hmm. in God's mm-hmm. kingdom. And those who have lost things are going to gain them back a hundredfold. Those who are last will be first and the first will be last. And the whole picture here, this teaching opportunity, it's this reordering of our entire understanding of how we relate to one another. And in the kingdom of God, those who have power are not those that have power in the systems that humanity has set up. And these, based on their stunned reaction to Jesus' teaching, other than maybe just reacting to the language that he was saying, because it's just a ridiculous (laughs) image of trying to take a needle up to a camel, it's just completely counter to their assumptions. And I imagine it's something that's completely counter to their understanding as well. And so hearing this passage ourselves in our day and age and responding with shock or feeling stunned might actually be an appropriate <laughs> reaction because yeah, we're in good company yes we're, we're right in line exactly. with the disciples right when we're like oh yeah even then it was so counter to the way that they had ingrained into their mind power and order was kind of built into the world one thing that strikes me particularly thinking about its context it comes right after the story of the rich young ruler and yet jesus instructs him to sell all of his possessions and then when when jesus is talking to peter the only possession that he references are their houses but the other one the others aren't mm. possessions right they've left their brothers and sisters and father and mother or children i guess farms is a, is a possession but it's interesting, like, it's not just possessions. There's also something that's, like, about relationships. Right. Hmm. And that's the other piece of this. I mean, I, I feel like we're already kind of on the edge. Yeah, we... <laughs> but I'm I, I, I to go <laughs> ahead and explicitly to. say, moving into more conversation about what the point of this text and thinking about how other this context is to our experience today we approach this text with a lens that assumes that the people who follow Jesus are the people who are in power Hmm. because that's the way it's been for more than essentially like 1700 years now. The vast majority, I guess, time wise, it's about 85% 
of the history of the church has been tied to global political power in some way. Yet, at the time that this was produced, the time that Jesus walked, the people that followed Jesus were not considered the political elites, but were the political outcasts at best, if not much worse, together with other religious and political minorities throughout the Roman Empire. Thinking about what the cost is to follow Jesus means something very different at that point than it does now. And so the idea of it being hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven really slaps us in the face when our church is so rich mm-hmm. and so powerful already. The idea of, wait, I have to give up my relationship with my mother or my brother or my kin in some way, and that's going to be rewarded? It's very different when your association with the way, with the followers of Jesus, may have cost you those relationships because of their fear of associating with you, given your new status in the empire. Hmm. There was a more significant cost than at least in our Western or white European Christianity. There's so much more of a cost that was experienced then than there is now. There, of course, are spaces throughout the world where expressing Christian faith or practicing Christian religion is still persecuted. But largely speaking, again, the tables have turned in terms of how that's received throughout the world. And so that's one more thing that I think more specifically relates to our context today that's so radically different for how we look back at this passage. I'm trying to think of a, of a parallel. Like what like if I was going to retell this story and I wanted that mm. same kind of like shock factor. I'm trying to think like how could I retell it? We don't have to do that on this. That could be an open question. We don't have to do that on the podcast. Well, we, no, we can certainly explore it a little bit. And I'm thinking about our, our settings today, too. While the context is so other, I think the message hits us in a way that is very similar. Because the church has so many resources throughout the world and holds so much power in communities, in political entities everywhere hearing these words of Jesus that say to paraphrase his imagery (laughs) it is crazy hard for the rich to get this thing right and I guess I guess my question from that is you know in addition to exploring how this translates today is just thinking about what's the barrier that wealth creates to our understanding of, to our buying into the idea of God's kingdom. I, I think it's an understatement, but in the grand scheme of things, Seth, we're rich. We might not be getting a thousand bucks a week for the next thousand weeks. I was reading a little bit of this. At least these numbers I saw were reported in 2018. What do you think the reported global median annual income is? Like, overall, around the the world, world. the median annual income. I think, I know it's going to be, I feel like whatever I say, it's going to be lower. I'm going to go $1,400. Okay. 
$480. Okay, you actually undershot. Uh, what? So it is a little bit higher. That was than my that. goal, though. I was uh, like, okay, how low can I go? Good job. This article in the Washington Post was talking about how Americans overall underestimate their wealth hmm. compared to the rest of the world. This survey that they were reporting on said that most Americans thought that the median global income was about $20,000, when in actuality it's about $2,100. Jeez. Oh, See, the way I came up with my number is I was thinking of the num- kind of the number of people who live on less than $1 or $2 a day. And I was right. like, well, I mean, $2 a day, right, is like about $800, $700. But like... So I just went a little bit higher thinking, okay, some people right. bump, are moving the average up. But. Exactly. Well, that's the thing, too, is this is the this is the median income, which generally speaking is getting you close to the middle of the values and doesn't, is, doesn't account for the skewing that the ridiculously high CEO of yeah. Fortune 500 company incomes and probably maybe to a lesser extent, but those those incomes that are so much drastically lower than that, too. Hmm. But Seth, I, in, in my job now, I get paid monthly, mm-hmm. and my paychecks are higher than that every month, that median annual oh income. And in actuality, most Americans fall within the, ten, the top 10% of wealth in the world. And so I say all that to again say, we need to identify with the rich young ruler whose story immediately precedes this text that we read. We need to recognize that there is something about the wealth that we hold that is apparently a very significant barrier to our true openness to the ways of Jesus. I just don't know that I have a clear answer about what that barrier looks like. Will Willimon, who teaches at Duke Divinity School, tells a story about this text. One day, he heard a student say, I've never been to a professor's house. And he thought, that's really sad. I'm a professor, and I have a house, and I love students. I should invite some of them over. So he did. He invites some of them over for dinner, and they get there. They ring the doorbell and he opens it and they walk in and they say, one says, wow, Dr. Willimon, your house is so nice. How do you reconcile having such a nice house with being a Christian? He said, (laughs) he said, get out. And then he said, I've never had any students over at my house since then. Oh man, this is this is a tough text, and I think that student like recognizes something that we're talking about, right? The, Absolutely, and it's something that that I think Will Willimon recognizes too. That's why I told him to get out. He, <laughs> right. he just didn't want to. He just didn't want to deal with it. He was like, "Oh no, we pushed this down." I think you're right. That student is identifying something. I feel like that student who. I mean, we know that seminary students are notoriously under-resourced and will likely be so for most of their ministry careers, too. But the lack of wealth in that scenario did bring down a barrier 
to a sort of honest conversation because as the resources begin to pile up you don't ask those you don't ask those questions if you're going over to your neighbor's really nice house if you know next door to your really nice house you're not like man we've got too much this is not this is not in line with the faith we say we have (laughs) but for those that are kind of on the outside of that experience those that are coming into the house and identifying it because they don't have that themselves it's easier to point it out and that can you know that can cause problems too because you don't want to just constantly be pointing the finger everywhere else i think there is true power and we're seeing that in communities across this country again today as well there's power when those who don't have the resources begin to point at those who do and the contrast in those moments is so stark. It's interesting to think about Jesus like that. Like he's the one pointed it out along with along with Peter who says yeah. like look I've given all this up. But it's Jesus who points it out too. I think I often think about Jesus poverty as like a choice. Like oh like he you know he he really right. chooses this like ascetic life and then i have to stop and think like i wonder how much of it is just a product of like the context and the oppression that he lives in at the time yeah and and the fact that we can sit here and say was jesus's poverty choice (laughs) exactly also also shows us the way that we think about resources is like oh the only way that you can live without resources (laughs) is to give them up and and give them away Exactly. Rather than being in a situation where you're struggling to make ends meet, to keep a roof over your head, to be safe. And yes, the same Jesus that is enshrined in stained glass and marble in so many places around the world, in these gargantuan cathedrals and expressions of religious art, is the same, the same one who said that birds have nests and foxes have dens. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is presenting a reality that is not only completely counter to what the disciples expected the order of the kingdom of God to look like. The kingdom of God. It is also really challenging to us and our assumptions and our practices today too. Especially for those of us who have the abundance of resources that we have. Man, this is a good text. It is. It's a tough text, but it's kind of an evergreen text, unfortunately. Right. Hmm. And even even in such a different context and setting, it still kind of leaves me stunned. Because in the circles I run in, if I heard Jesus say this today, I think I would also ask. But then... Who could possibly yeah. get in? <laughs> hmm. Oh man, I just love the way that you identified how Jesus's status, his socioeconomic status, so to speak, is not something that he applied yeah. for and qualified for or opted into. It was simply who he was. God clearly saw something important enough to enter into that historical moment Hmm. in that way with that people group 
that we need to try and peel away the layers of European and American colonialism and cultural and white supremacy and all these things that we've kind of added these layers to the understanding of what it means to be church and what it means to follow Jesus in this world. And remember that Jesus came to set the prisoners free, (laughs) give sight to the blind, heal the sick, and that that reality takes precedence and I would say completely dismantles what seems to be the priority of the church in a lot of spaces today and a lot of churchgoers in a lot of spaces today, which is to acquire and maintain power and authority. It strikes me that we've made following Jesus a lot easier than it was ever meant to be. I think we need to pray. I think that that's all we could do at this point. Let's pray. Matchless one, your beauty and majesty will always make our riches and treasures seem dull and worthless. Help us to remember that all that glitters is not gold, and that true wealth comes when we come fully alive in you and with your people. Mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Seth, what story will we tell next week? Next week, we're talking about Numbers 27, verses 12 to 14. I'm ready for it. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Jonathan. Thanks for helping me tell it.